0: Now that I come to mention it, Coop, you know what I'm in the mood for? What's that, Gordon? A steak so rare you could sell it at Tiffany's. Well, you come to the right place. Holy smokes, who is that?
1: Shelley Johnson!
0: What a beauty! Kind of reminds me of that statue, the babe without the arms.
1: Venus de Milo.
0: The name was Milo, but that's beside the point. That's the kind of girl to make you wish she spoke a little French excuse me cook while I try my hand in a little counter Esperanto good luck Gordon hello I was wondering if I might trouble you for a cup of strong black coffee and in the process engage you with an anecdote of no small amusement the name is Gordon Cole and I couldn't help but notice you from the booth and well Seeing your beauty now, I feel as though my stomach is filled with a team of bumblebees. You don't have to shout. I can hear you. I heard that. I I heard that. Um, do you want anything besides coffee? I heard you perfectly. And I can hear you honest, please. You don't understand. You don't understand, Miss Johnson. Do you see these? Uh Huh? for 20 years. I've been asking people to please speak up, but for some weird reason, I can hear you clear as a bell. Say something else. Um, uh, do you want pie with your coffee? Good Lord, I can hear you perfectly. This is like some kind of miracle, a phenomenon. Would you like some pie? Massive, massive quantities and a glass of water, sweetheart. My socks are on fire.
1: Some kind of nature Some kind of soul, Some kind of mixture Some kind of gold Some kind of majesty Some chemical load Some kind of metal made up from glue Some kind of plastic I could wrap around you sit with our picture and build it oh, 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 oh. Some, some kind of nature, some kind of soul Some kind of mixture, some kind of gold Some kind of majesty, some kind of low Well, me, like plastics and digital foils Oh, you Right
2: Right, <laughs> right Club Tim here. Tim and Kurt. Say hi, Kurt. Hi, Kurt.
3: Uh-huh. Recording live from Legion Bar in yes. Williamsburg, Brooklyn.
2: In beautiful Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And by beautiful, we mean... At
3: the Pythos event.
2: <laughs> yes, at Slice Magazine's Pythos event. Oh,
3: Slice. Hi, Slice. slice. Wow, there's that... so many
2: levels. Yeah, yeah, totally <laughs> planned, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, it's Slice Magazine's Pythos event, uh, and it's, a, it's where five Brooklyn-based ind, uh, independent literary organizations go head-to-head in a reading challenge. The uh, prize for the best reader, what do you think it is? Pie? A fresh baked pie. Oh, Apple pie is the actual prize? Yes. That's Apple, awesome. so I hear. So the, um, the, uh, uh I'm going to be recording it because this is something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, this is, is
3: Right Club stepping out of the studio. Yeah.
2: A little less comic, a little more rock and roll. Um, and since I'm affiliated with Slice, I've always wanted to record a Slice event and podcast it.
3: Yeah, I mean, work with, uh, work with who you know, right?
2: Exactly.
3: Network and bullshit. Right. And
2: I hate stepping outside of my sphere of comfort, so slice is perfect.
3: Baby steps, baby steps. Exactly.
2: So the uh, they will announce the. So basically, it's five literary organizations in Brooklyn, independent, um, and they've been they've assigned each other reading challenges. Uh, assigned a reader for each challenge and that reader will go head to head with other readers to see who best steps up to the challenge. Um, The organizations and readers are uh, Kate Axelrod for Featherproof Books and I'm sure Alex, the uh, Alex Fredericks, the uh, organizer of the event will read these again but... It can't hurt, just in case things get muddled. Uh, Oliver Miller of The Faster Times, which is a a blog, a news blog. Um, Corey Eastwood, and you'll like this, Kurt, from Book Thug Nation. Uh, Martha Rayoli of Canteen Magazine. And Liz Matthews from Slice Magazine. So, yeah, it should be a fun night.
3: And then after this, what I'll try and do is I'll check out these said... writing reading organizations and I will I will investigate them. I'll be yes. some investigative journalist. Oh yeah. Oh Get and the I have to just say uh tears to me getting day hours. Oh, I will not be a normal human being working Monday through Friday, eight thirty to five.
2: At the daily news.
3: So you will see me now uh at more events Awesome. About. And um, I will be now in charge of the entertainment section.
2: Excellent. Uh,
3: photo editing of daily news. So that means I need to now scour these. Yes, websites. yes. So well, here expect you go. More and more stuff coming soon from the Tumblr, the blog, and stuff.
2: Word up. All right. We'll be back. Right Club. Pythos. Right Club. Alex Fredericks here from Slice Magazine, the online editor. Tell us a bit about this event, Alex.
4: Well, this event is called Pythos, a reading. Um, and essentially what we're trying to do is bring a bunch of participants in the independent publishing scene in Brooklyn together, uh, competing on a friendly level so that there's... Uh, the problem with just doing just doing a reading is that... Um, Feel like it doesn't really get people to interact. People just come up and read their thing and walk off. The problem with doing a, um, with actually setting up a competition is that we don't really want people to have bad blood, but we do want to have a little bit of rivalry. So we set up this thing where everybody challenges every, everybody. Uh, all, all of the readers represent a certain independent uh, indie publishing out uh, concern in in Brooklyn, and each of them has have challenged one of the others to write something according to a certain certain rules they've laid out. Um, and then we're going to pick a random panel from the audience, and that panel will, just, will decide who best met the challenge and uh, created the most enjoyable story. And that person will win a pie. Or, or that, Excellent. That organization will win a pie. So the idea is it's, it's competitive but very, very low stakes, so that hopefully everyone's just happy to, to be here.
2: Good. Smart. Very cool. You want people to bring very it cool. Thank you. but not bring it hard. Yes.
4: That's basically it. Uh, bring, it bring it but hug. Like a really aggressive nuzzle is what we're looking for here.
2: Right, Club. We're going to be nuzzling aggressively tonight. Thanks, Alex.
4: You betcha. Pythos. I am uh, Alex Benowitz Fredericks. I work for Slice Magazine, a literary journal out of Park Slope. Um, thank you, guy who works with me, for applauding. Um, anyway, uh, so here's what's going on tonight. We have uh, invited four. Uh, independent publishing outfits, and I'm, you know, essentially anybody who does writing not for a huge corporation is, you know, considered part of independent publishing, people who are clearly not doing it for any <laughs> any realistic hope of monetary reward. Um, there's a lot of it going on in Brooklyn. Uh, I feel like a lot of people know some of it, but few people know all of it, and so hopefully at some point we're gonna make this a series, and at some point you will see somebody from everybody who's laboring to do stuff in independent publishing out here uh over the course of i don't know a decade uh, the rules so everybody here is competing to win the uh the grand pies if you if you will uh this is a delicious apple pie baked today by blue stove uh who are five blocks that way and are not actually sponsors this event. I just really like them. Um, and so everybody will come up and read a piece that they have written in response to a certain challenge, a certain set of constraints on what they can write, issued by another one of the organizations participating. Does this make sense? Right? Yeah. questions? <laughs> OK. Um, then at the end, whoever has best sort of met the challenge and written a really good, engaging piece Will win the grand prize. Uh, now, for the judging, we were hoping to have um, a somewhat uh, unbiased panel from the audience. Is anybody here interested in being a judge? Raise a hand.
1: All right.
4: I'll take I'll take you and I have, like two other people who I don't know. Uh, who's best? Okay, I don't know you, and I don't, have I met you? I don't know, <laughs> don't, I have met you, actually. <laughs> um, can, I, can I draft somebody? Can I, can I draft you? No? Yeah. Uh, can I draft the guy next to you? Completely biased. You're completely biased? Yes. <laughs> um, okay, well, all right. Okay. okay, good. Okay, so you, you, and you. What? Why? what? Well, hopefully you guys will. I, I, I'm banking on you guys to get together and uh, break the tie among you. Um, all right. So, are there any questions? Okay, we're we're good to begin. I think. All right. So we are going to bring up first uh, our own representative from Slice Magazine. Uh, so for those who don't know, all right, Slice is a Brooklyn-based literary journal dedicated to finding and disseminating new voices, uh, put and putting them in dialogue with established writers. Essentially, trying to create a, a sense of continuity outside of the you know really narrow, strict constraints of traditional publishing. Um, and uh, along with this, we're 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 trying to uh, build a network for those who write and publish outside of the, of the, the standard structures and. Uh, you know, embrace colleagues and writers across styles, across genres, uh, just across the spectrum. And, yes, Damn right we are. hugging. Lots of hugging. Uh, so our, read, the what person we have chosen to represent us is Liz Matthews. Uh, Liz is... <laughs> you do have Jeff <laughs> come up. Uh, So, Liz Matthews composes ads for many things, science fiction and fantasy. Her writing can be found in magazines and catalogs and newspapers and brochures and books and on bookmarks, postcards, cable television commercials, door hangers, all across the United States and Canada. She lives in Brooklyn but considers the cornfields of Iowa home. Her challenge, uh, and this challenge was issued by Canteen. Um, Her challenge was the collaborative texting challenge. She was to choose a person with whom to phone text back and forth. She must initiate the first text. All text messages must be less than 140 characters. The nature or genre of the conversation is completely up to her discretion. The duration of the communication is also up to her and her collaborator. The final transcript of this conversation should be treated as a draft, which may be manipulated as she sees fit to create a completed piece that she will present to the room. Ladies and gentlemen, Liz Matthews.
5: Prior to last weekend, I knew four or five things about Maine, the state. I knew, for instance, that my cousin lives there with her twin children, and that one time a squirrel got into their home through the chimney. Thus, I also knew that there are squirrels in Maine. I knew, prior to Saturday, that there is a restaurant in the East Village called Luke's Lobster that gets lobster fresh every morning from somewhere in Maine. And somehow, the staff is able to tell you what dock the lobster came in from in your lobster roll. I knew that people in Maine have accents. I knew that Stephen King is from Maine, and he got hit by a van there. <laughs> but the main thing I knew about Maine is that I wanted to go there. And I also knew that I was extremely jealous of my friends Katie and Dan, who mentioned Maine as part of their weekend plans. Katie had promised to send me photographs of what Maine looked like. By 11 a.m. on Saturday, I wanted those pictures. So I let my fingers do the demanding. As I set off for the main branch of the Brooklyn Public Library, I texted Katie, are you in Maine? By the time I reached the end of my block, my phone vibrated with an incoming message. Yes, it is chilly here. She exclaimed these things with exclamation marks. I thought for a moment, how could I best express the envy ranging through my veins, yet simultaneously suggest that Brooklyn was pretty all right that morning, too. I tapped out. So jealous. It is merely pleasant here.
1: <laughs>
5: and with that, I dropped my phone in my bag and continued on my walk, passing the main entrance of the Brooklyn Botanic Garden as I went. Then I felt my phone buzz against my hip. Katie had written, this is Maine from our hotel room. And I don't know if you can see this very well. <laughs> It looked very much like a hotel room I'd stayed in in Milwaukee earlier in the summer, or even like the view from one of my college dorm rooms in Iowa so many years ago. The phone buzzed again in my hand. Katie Britton. I saw lots and lots of trees all in cabs <laughs> on a seven-hour car ride yesterday. I was walking past the trees at that very moment, but I wrote, I ran past some trees this morning, Dot, dot, dot. And I can look at photos of trees on the internet. Dot, dot, dot. Sigh. Then my phone was silent and motionless for a while. I went to a cafe in my neighborhood and read a magazine while I drank some coffee. It was nice. My phone buzzed on the tabletop with a new attached photograph. Breakfast in Maine looks like this. (laughs) I responded, like the Dan, because that's what we call that guy. (laughs) And I thought about how many of the breakfasts and lunches and even some dinners I've had here in Brooklyn look very much like Katie's main breakfast. I finished my drink and the story I was reading. I sent some texts to other people about apartment listings and went on with my day. While I was watching an episode of The Wire back at home, Katie sent another photo text. She captioned it, These are leaves in Maine. (laughs) (laughs) I looked at the photo and thought about how it looked so similar to all the trees lining Washington Street, which I often have to walk along. I failed to write back. I could think of nothing clever or despondent, and instead got distracted by a basketball invitation. It wasn't until the next evening that I experienced a longing for more Maine information while walking home in traffic-filled Prospect Heights. Are you still in Maine? I tapped away, wondering if those leaves were the be-all and end-all of interesting things Katie and Dan had seen in Maine, interesting things that were markedly like things one might see anywhere that has trees and hotels in the season of autumn. Katie wrote back promptly, no, we came back last night. (laughs) She'd used five O's in the (laughs) note. My weekend of learning things about Maine had come to an end, and had done so, apparently, while I'd been watching Twin Peaks the evening before, a show which was filmed in another place I'm longing to visit, on the opposite side of the United States, from Maine.
4: Okay, um, next up, we have representing Book Thug Nation, uh, Mr. Corey Eastwood. Uh, Book Thug Nation is a new bookstore community space that opened in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It's not actually that new. You guys have been around for a it's year now, right?
3: Yeah. The
4: store was started by four independent booksellers who sold books on the streets of New York City for years. Uh, BTN believes that independent bookstores are an essential part of a healthy creative New York City They strive to be an active community space that fosters the literary arts in Brooklyn While being a welcoming place where anyone can walk in, have a cup of coffee, and talk about books They do host a bunch of their own readings as well So definitely go to the site uh, Which I'm going to guess bookthugnation.com All right uh, So yeah, Corey is writer and a co-owner of Book Thug Nation His challenge this is from uh, uh, Oliver at the Faster Times. Oliver simply queried, what is the saddest story you've ever heard?
1: <laughs> and yeah,
4: that's, there, there's your challenge, man. Go to us.
3: Um, there's some German words in here, and I know some of you speak German, so uh, if I mis- mispronounce something, feel free to uh, scold me. Um, it's called Geschichte. History, even at its bloodiest, is cleaner than life. I found some comfort in this thought as my wife and I silently climbed the steps of the Alexanderplatz Ubon station in the midst of yet another fight. The current tension concerned a disagreement over the month that the Nazis invaded Poland. I said October and Kati, my wife, was adamant that it was September. My authority was based on a book I just read and hers on the fact that she was German. <laughs> when we reached the platform, Kati made, a, Kati made a disparaging comment about a group of English speaking tourists clustered near the stairs and took off toward the far end. As I pushed through the crowd to catch up to her, I tried to put aside my anger and view her as a stranger, Mike, with objectivity. She reached an empty spot near a telephone booth and had just lit a cigarette. Her strawberry blonde hair frizzed from underneath the hood of her raincoat, and an indignation weighed down her brow and puffed out her lips. Her dimpled cheeks were flushed. And from the co- were flushed from the cold, and her body bounced slightly as she tapped her foot. Her beauty remained un- undeniable. And despite all our troubles since she'd moved back to Berlin to take a job at the university, and despite the terrible first few weeks we'd had together during this autumn visit, I was still very much in love with her. I was about to tell her this and apologize for my stubbornness about the Polish invasion, when her face lit and smile and she stepped past me to hug an equally happy-looking man. I stood there, grinning sheepishly, waiting to be introduced while they carried on in German without acknowledging me. When I'd waited as long as my waning integrity would allow, I turned from them and watched the television tower flashing through a patch of dark clouds. My wife's voice, which which normally invoked adoration, sounded alien and conspiratorial in its native tongue as it bubbled incomprehensible behind me. When spoken by a German, Geschichte, their word for history, nearly always slips out discreetly with a subtle but distinct dip in volume, it's as if there's an embedded whisper in the word, and in the hush of that whisper, one can hear shame, shame and a profound, unforgiving sadness. It's no coincidence that it became that I'd, I'd become more interested in that I'd become more interested in history, as the word love, which had stopped being a word Kati and I spoke aloud, had at least in my mind taken on a similar tone. Things between us had been strained my entire trip. After four months without seeing each other, I arrived in Berlin to a sagging smile and a few lukewarm kisses. From the airport, we went directly to Kati's new flat, which she had shared with another faculty member at the university. We closed the door to her room, put on a record, and so as not to bother her roommate, took the mattress off its rickety rickety brass frame. There on top of the box spring was an empty condom wrapper. We both saw it. She threw a blanket on top, then resumed kissing me. I said nothing, as the terms of our relationship allowed for it, but in the weeks following my arrival, the image of that rapper continued to plague me. German history was one of the few things that successfully took my mind off of it. To avoid agonizing over the rapper, I thought about Hitler, and to avoid <laughs> dwelling on my marriage's uncertainty, I thought about his victims. <laughs> eventually, <clears throat> eventually, Kati remembered me, and with a reproachful tone as if I were the one being rude, called, called, called me over for an introduction. Jonas was, was tall with a set of soft blue eyes that didn't diminish their penetrating quality. Shaking his hand, I remembered that I'd met him two years previous at a party at his flat when Katia and I had traveled to Berlin shortly after our wedding. That night, she flirted about the room in her black cotton dress, doling out smiles and hugs like the one she'd just given Jonas. But then I was able to view her cheer in a very different light. Jonas and I exchanged the minimal trivialities decorum required before silence ensued and Katia asked him about his flat. I listened passively, hoping that they would switch back to German. Lena just moved in with you, right? Kauti continued in English. I met her recently. She has, a, she has a daughter? Yes, Rosa. She's great, a really sweet kid. Poor thing, though. It was her birthday the other day and the anniversary. Anniversary? Yes, the death. Death? Kauti said as if she were asking for a translation. For the first time, I was glad they were speaking in English. Rosa's father, Lena's husband, passed away four years ago last Friday on Rosa's birthday. That's terrible, Kati said. I didn't know. Was he sick? Yunus sighed, inserting a, mil- inserting a melodramatic pause before beginning his story. They were in Burma doing some kind of charity work. They were staying in a hostel and had been there for a week and a half when Rosa turned one. They had a party for her with some of the locals and people from their organization. Then, shortly after the guests had left, Lena and her husband had a fight, and he ran out of the hotel. Again, Jonas paused, and it was clear by his dramatic delivery that he was enjoying himself. The next morning, the hostel's caretaker knocked on the door and asked if her husband was missing. Yes, she said, still angry at him. What did that asshole do? And then the caretaker told her he was dead. With that, Jonas ended his story, and the three of us looked toward the oncoming train. I think that's the saddest story I've ever heard, said Kathy. Very sad, I reiterated, anxious to hear him go on. But as we got on the train, he began asking Kati about the class she was teaching. There were two free seats and I insisted that Jonas and Kati take them. They continued discussing academia and I did a bad job of pretending to listen, too preoccupied with the unfinished story of the husband's death. At some point I noticed that they'd shifted back to German. Several nights later, things came to a head. we shared a bottle of Chardonnay with dinner and afterwards I started on her bottle of gin. My third glass was strong enough to mention the condom wrapper. She offered no explanation, but reminded me it wasn't my place to ask. I haven't asked you. Do you want me to ask you? What is it that you want? Do you really want me to tell you? I wanted to know, but I didn't want to hear. I wanted to speak, but I couldn't tell her. These contradictions frustrated me and I became uncontrollably angry. I shouted at her and stormed out of the flat. A frigid mist had taken the air and I'd brought neither my hat nor raincoat. I stopped into a deli to buy beer, then hurried on directionless, my thoughts competing against the racing wind. I was not one to walk on fights. I preferred to win them. But the dead husband was on my mind, and I assumed that he was on Kati's as well. Let her suffer, I thought. Let her imagine what her life will be like without me. I walked on, trying to blot out the sinister gleam of the rain-slickened cobblestones. For some time I was able to comfort comfort myself with beer and geschishter. I crossed the Spree past a preserved section of the wall, noting that nearly 200 people were killed trying to cross it. In Kreuzberg, I passed a synagogue burned on Kristallnacht in 38, then bombed by the Allies in 45. I stopped in front of a building in Neukon, whose facade was still riddled with bullet holes. I counted exactly 53. But the condom wrapper and the unnamed husband's death continued to torment me. Trumping even the twentieth century's most gruesome genocide, as mysteries, they become interconnected in my mind, equally horrifying in their endless possibilities: suicide, murder, freak accident, friend, one night sto- one night stand, paramour, suicide, friend, one night stand, freak accident, paramour, murder. Though I didn't begin with my walk, <coughs> though I didn't begin my walk with the intention of visiting Jonas and demanding an answer. It wasn't entirely by accident that I found myself in his hallway, shivering, half crazed, knocking on his door. Hello, said a child's voice. She was blonde with a few locks of with a few locks hanging between her tall eyes. What are you doing up so late? She looked back at me, smiled, then said English. Veristas called a woman's voice from the hallway. Hello? And she I stammered, Sie English. Yes, she responded with a smile that at once won me over. Of course I do. What's up? I'm a friend of Jonas. Jonas, she corrected me. There was a strong current of affection when she said his name, and for the first time it occurred to me that they might be lovers. She told me he wasn't in, then, <coughs> then commented on my wet clothes and trembling lips, and asked if I'd like to join her for tea. I thanked her, but said I had to be going. She told me she'd tell Jonas I stopped by, and as I was leaving, they both smiled at me, and Rosa wished me goodnight in English. I hurried back to Katis thinking nothing of Geschishtah, condom wrappers, or the dead husband. I thought of their smiles, how beautiful they were, how they showed no signs of loss, and how that made them the saddest parts of their sad story.
4: That was Corey from Book Club Nation. All right, next up. Representing uh, Featherproof Books, Independent Press, uh, are they? Dumbo, right? Chicago. They're Chicago? <laughs> oh. Well, they have a lot of, they, they, I, I know there's at least two people who work for them who are here in Brooklyn, they still count. Um, all right, so, sorry, Fe- Featherproof is an indie publisher. Really, they just a Word. I know, they had a reading there. All right, well. <laughs> Featherproof is an indie publisher dedicated to doing uh, whatever they want. This may take the form of publishing an idiosyncratic novel, design book, something in between. Their reader tonight is Kate Axelrod. Kate... Woo! 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 Okay. Um. <laughs> I lost my place. Kate Axelrod is currently pursu- per- pursuing a master's in social work at Columbia University. Her fiction can be found in Candor Magazine, Story Glossia, the Slice Magazine blog, and the Featherproof Books website. Her challenge was issued from Corey at Book Thug Nation. It is, write a story with a character who's preoccupied with one of the things on the list below. Of the five you don't choose, uh, uh, mention at least two of them in the story itself. The list of seven things. Pascal men with large penises, topography, the health benefits of chamomile tea, fascism, and aging. Kate Axelrod.
6: My mom calls me and asks if I can please go visit Betsy, go see how she's doing. I've been living in the city for only a few months, my second semester in a PhD program in NYU. Betsy is my first cousin, and she lives in some quiet part of Brooklyn that I've never heard of, where the trains are elevated and you can see the faint outline of Coney Island, that ghost of its vibrancy. Betsy only 31, but somehow she's already sort of gained the reputation of one of those older, single-family members, who drinks too much whiskey and talks to more cats than people, and only watches the sci-fi channel. None of us have seen her in a long while. She hasn't been back to Cleveland since her mom's funeral in late 2005, when she was drunk and messy, and screaming about how the doctors were all fascists, how they poisoned her mother, (laughs) forced chemo through her veins, and that was what really killed her. Betsy had long hair then, thick and wild, and in all her grief was swinging it around furiously, head-banging like some 80s rock star. Betsy's sob sounded so guttural, so painful, but all I could focus on were her shoes. She was wearing Crocs. Black Crocs, but still. So thick and rubbery and out of place in the quiet manicured lawns of the cemetery. Betsy and I have never really been close, but now here we are living in basically the same city and my mom's conscience is nagging her. The loss of her sister are constant pulsing in her thoughts. I walk into the building and I'm immediately hit with the scent of ammonia, which still in an instant takes me back to my elementary school cafeteria. The buckets of blue liquid, that smell of cleanliness that is somehow only a reminder of filth. Betsy opens her door and seems disappointed, but I know she's expecting me. She looks so different. Her hair is bright and choppy, just barely covering her ears, and her breasts are enormous, round and swollen. The first thing Betsy asks me is if I want some chamomile tea. I say no, quickly, dismissively, because I'm so overwhelmed at the sight of her apartment that I almost can't breathe. Are you sure, she says. It's really good for you. You probably should. (laughs) The apartment's a a large studio, and the walls are covered entirely in maps, topography maps of the United States. Every region of the country is sectioned and pasted beside the couch. And behind it, there's Europe. Southeast Asia and North Africa are across the wall. There are pools of muted color, green and brown and blue. The apartment is completely cluttered, stuff everywhere. Baby strollers filled with old paperback books, pet carrying cases, milk crates with broken bulky electronics, Walkman and BCRs, and a couple of those old beige cordless phones with metal antennas. There are boxes of cereal, flattened or bloated, all over the floor. On the windowsill are four stuffed animals, all Alf dolls. with his bulging tan nose and goofy ears. Alf in a pair of denim overalls. Alf in navy flannel pajamas. Alf in an apron and chef's hat. And Alf is a talking hand puppet. <laughs> <laughs> what, she says, but it's barely a question, more like an accusation. It's my stuff. <laughs> it's my stuff, she says. I knew it. She sits back down on the couch, which to her right is piled with newspapers. Okay, so how is everything, what's up? Not much, she says. There's a storm coming in from Maine. See that? She points to the TV, which is on mute, a map with swirls of color, drifting slowly across the screen. Weathermen are always so alarmist, I say. It's hardly ever as bad as I tell you it's gonna be. I hear they're getting fucked in Cleveland, Betsy says. There's a fucking whiteout right now, and it's only November. I ask if she's been in touch with her dad lately, or Bobby, her younger brother. Barely, she says and without looking past the wall beside her. She scratches, a little affectionately, against the map of the U.S. She's still looking forward, blankly at the screen, but her palm is there, right up against the smooth, flattened green of Ohio. You're making me nervous, she says, and she breathes in deeply. Her chest is like a ledge, so big her chin almost dips into her cleavage. Can you sit down? Oh, sure, sorry, but I look around, and there's literally nowhere to go, not a surface uncluttered. Just move something, she says. You can move any of it, just be careful. Those records over there, just put them on the floor. I sit in an old corduroy easy chair and put a stack of Dylan records on my lap. I ask her some stupid questions, but really there isn't much to say. Mostly I just watch her watch the muted screen, the air stirring softly and then rapidly from state to state through the textured plains, over mountain ranges, and through valleys. I wonder what's going on with Betsy and if it's too simple or obvious to assume that all the clutter... All this junk is just there to fill the spaces that her mother has left. After a while, I get up and examine a map of Austria and Poland, where our great-grandparents are from. I trace some lines, but I can't identify the different keys. Everything looks tiny and complicated. And then Betsy looks at me in what is maybe a brief moment of clarity. It's just so massive, she says, my thoughts in this huge, massive maze. Sometimes I feel so suffocated and lost in my own head. It's just nice to know that someone's navigating something out there.
4: All right, is Oliver here? Is anybody here, Oliver? You know? All right. Next up, representing Canteen Magazine. Martha? Okay. Said, I was in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Next reader is from Canteen. It's, is it Roundy? Ra- Rayoli? Rayoli? Martha Rayoli. Um, yeah. Martha, Martha Rayoli uh, has a piece of fiction in the new issue of Canteen. Uh, she is a Cuban-American writer, artist, and art collector who is just finishing her first collection of short stories entitled The Collect- Collected Incomplete or The Incomplete Collected. She's reading on behalf of Canteen Magazine. Canteen's mission statement is taken from their webpage. Canteen redefines the literary magazine. We ask accomplished writers, artists, chefs, and even a glass walker and a CIA agent to reveal their creative process. When we pair that insight with the best new work in fiction, poetry, art, and photography, all designed to look more like a fine art book than a dusty journal. Uh, Issue six features Tao Lin, Neil Peters, Dana Goodyear, Ted Childs, and more. All right, their challenge was issued by Slice Magazine. It was titled The Misfortune Cookie. The, uh, the challenge was as such, get Chinese food, or at least get a, get a fortune cookie. Your piece must use the words in the fortune cookie in the opposite order. Not con- they don't need to be consecutive, but they just can't be block quoted. Um, likewise, the piece must thematically reflect the opposite of the message contained on the fortune. Ladies and gentlemen, Martha (laughs) Raioli.
7: In the spirit of Canteen, which is really a visual kind of magazine, um, I wanted to um, offer you as proof, because this is a competition after all, Um, the evidence that I have inserted the fortune cookie backwards into the text, the super, like, you glippin' kind of, like, uh, challenge, which I love doing. Um, The fortune cookie that I ended up with was if a man has common sense, he has all the sense there is. My piece... (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was easy. (laughs) And my piece is called The Proofreader. (coughs) After my audition and the requisite hand job, I walk into Happy Bamboo, Chinese food palace, and make my way to the bar. I order a dry sparkling water and a dozen or so fortune cookies. Then I give the bar stool a swirl and I wait for the stool to stop spinning and then I sit my ass down to wait. Getting a fortune cookie out of a cookie is not as easy as you think it is. The cookie is not a cookie even kind of shiny and eucharistic. It cracks like soft plastic or styrofoam. You need to claw your way into it and draw the paper out. There is always that quick elation right before you read it, followed by the bland sadness of having read it. What I want to know about myself is never there. What I want to know is pretty simple and a yes or no answer will do. Or something vaguely upbeat like, You will grow the garden of your dream or your sun will shine now or something more precise like you are about to get chosen. White paper fortune sentences are curled and piled on the bar. An old man reading the post calls to me. You a proofreader for fortune cookies? I say, yeah. Then I say, no, no. And I get the sense he's disappointed. So I say, yeah, yeah. I just I gotta keep it under wraps. Can you keep my secret? And I try to wink to him. Fraternal secrecy. He nods and winks back, lifts up his beer. What I don't tell him about is my audition, my fears, or my slightly whorish ambition. Getting this role would be everything to me. It's a new show, which means I would be the original cast member. I won't be the replacement of the original cast member, or worse, a replacement of a replacement who always falls short of the original. I pick a fortune paper at random. I rip it into two halves like rich people do to money when they're angry. I keep ripping them up. The guy at the end of the bar who thinks I'm a proofreader chuckles so that I can hear him and I shrug. So far they really suck. They, so far they all really suck ass. The show's producer kept calling me Lucille, Lucille, which, what did I care? He made little hiccuping noises that reminded me of a stutterer I once shared an airplane with. After I finished, he said, I had a sense about you the minute you walked in. I got this feeling in my gut that you'd be perfect for the role. But I got this other feeling, just as powerful. You understand that you will be terrible for the part. I gotta sit on this. I'll call you. I'll call you personally to tell you either way. As I walked out the door, he said, Hey, I'm curious, you know? You make me curious. The bartender's this pale white thing with bleached blonde hair and black velvety eyelashes. I say, "Can I ask you a question? Will I or won't I?" The bartender looks like a person with some common sense, but then proves to be uncommon in every way. The bartender says, "Is there a man? No, no, I say it's a job thing, a job thing. The bartender says you look to me like someone who should be okay with being good enough. I say, that's exactly what my therapist says. The bartender says, you don't need to study psychology if you have common sense, all you need is common sense. If a man has common sense, he has all the sense there is. The bartender smiles. This last sentence and the smile felt a bit off to me. As a trained actor, I have a sense about authenticity. And there was definitely something off about this bartender's lines. I tried some corrective rephrasing, which is a skill I learned from my mother and apply liberally to my co-stars should they slip out of line. I repeated to the bartender, oh, you mean if a man has common sense, he has all the sense he needs. All the sense he needs, right? If a man has it, then he's all set. He doesn't need any other sense except the common sense, right? but there are other senses to be had, other less common ones, right? You better listen to her, says the man at the end of the bar who is reading the post. The bartender says, no, I meant what I said. If a man has common sense, he has the sense there is. There's no other sense. If a man has common sense, he has all the sense there is. Every other sense is fluffer butter, gobbledygook, academic posturing, it's the common sense that's the sense that makes sense. I thought about how nice it would be to have common sense. If I had common sense, I would be okay. Whatever, I say there's just one more fortune cookie to open. I open it. It says exactly what the bartender had just said. This makes me feel faint because I dislike anything vaguely paranormal. I slip off my stool and I hit my head against the bar. I'm rushed to the hospital. The guy at the end of the bar who's reading the post ends up coming along as my guardian. It turns out he's a producer for a major show that seems even better than the show I auditioned for. He stands over my hospital bed and says, why didn't you tell me you were an actress? I say, I thought you wanted me to be a proofreader. We both laugh. The bandages come off my head. I sign a contract with the guy at the end of the bar. I'm in rehearsal for months. I play one of the lead parts and I even get to sing. The day before the performance, I get laryngitis. If my understudy is good, I will fail to live up to her performance. Her performance ends up being so good, the producer says she needs to stay on. He breaks my contract with his bare hands. I go to another audition. I do or do not get the part is how this business is, and nothing I do is gonna change a thing.
4: Alright, so we um I don't know, does it <laughs> anybody uh, anybody have a good joke? Uh <laughs> I feel really bad. Uh Oliver Miller from The Faster Times supposed to be here. He um he was not feeling great, but he definitely said he was coming, but he may just be lost in transit. Um if anybody has, I, I I don't have a great idea for how to kill time, so I'm going to uh, ask the judges to deliberate, and hopefully this will turn into some great cinematic moment where we, you know you go we've come to a decision he comes running in slow motion, <laughs> so you're in right? Um, but yes, please get, deliberate, see if you can come up with again you're looking for who best met their challenge and created a wonderful piece like of first. of art. So yeah, if you guys wanna, yeah, rank them, rank them one to four, and we'll do. I'll do some math. Um, and yeah, nobody leave, because afterwards, uh, Ben and Sam, is, is, you guys are Novavis, is that, or just Novavis, pardon. Whatever, we have some, they're, they're awesome DJs, they're gonna play great music, you'll be able to dance to it, it'll be fun. Stick around.
2: Right Club, Tim here, Um, recording a uh, wrap-up to the Slice Magazine Pythos event. Um, Now, here's why you're not hearing the announcement of the winners. Uh, Quick anecdote. Um, As I was checking the levels for the the sound in the bar with my fancy little doodad microphone, um, somebody asked me, Oh, are you going to run out of tape on that thing? And I was all like, this is digital, son. I not tape. This thing will run forever. Well, I didn't run out of tape, but I did run out of space on the memory card. So I didn't record the end of the event. But that's fine. I mean, it was just an announcement of the winner. Uh, there was no uh, crazy cinematic moment where Oliver the fifth reader bursts into the room proclaiming his right to read that didn't happen but the judges did come to a uh a decision and they agreed that um the winner was Corey Eastwood of Book Thug Nation um who read the uh saddest story he'd ever heard um so yeah, congrats to Corey. Um his acceptance speech was the saddest, most heartwarming speech I'd ever heard uttered in human speech. Um I wish I had it recorded, but now it's lost forever to memory. So, sorry, right Clobers. Um actually no, he was just very grateful. Um he didn't give any crazy speech. I'm just joking around. Um, anyway, the event went really well. Uh, Kurt and I stayed after. People stayed. We drank and danced and uh, ate pie. So Pythos, Slice Magazine, Right Club, Timucci out. Pythos. Protect the girls from
1: the spiritual poison. We spell at night. Like phony clothes, but I really like my some kind of nature.